Hey, if you got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open it to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 5. We're in a series right now as we're just walking through the book of 1 Timothy. And if you have not been a part of this series at all, here's what you need to know. Paul, the apostle who wrote about half the letters in the New Testament, is writing to Timothy, one of his protégés, who is now pastoring a church in a key city of Ephesus, a major uh, metropolitan area. He's pastoring in Ephesus, and, and Paul is writing to him about how to lead the church and how the church is supposed to function. And so again, whether you're a church leader or not, church leadership is the model for the rest of us. So all of this is applicable to every believer. Today, as, as we get ready to get into chapter five, let me just say before we even start what I love about chapter five, it communicates one of our core values as a church. We have six core values, and one of them is culture of honor. How many of you know we can't trust the culture, the American culture, to teach honor to the next generation, right? Like we, we, we that ship has sailed. Some of you, you're, you're school teachers and you've just had a couple days back and you're like, pass me that mic, I will testify today. That ship has sailed. <laughs> I was talking with Laura Splain. She runs the cafeteria at one of the schools um, I won't say which school because they got beat terribly by Eastern York on Friday night, and I don't want to put salt in the wound. <laughs> I know, I know. It's the second service. I get a little ornery as the day goes on. But she saw this little kid came into the school, and she said, good morning. And he said, I don't like you. I was like, okay then. Let's have a great school year. How many of you know it's up to the church to communicate honor to the next generation? So it's one of our core values. And as we read through this chapter, what you're gonna find is that it matters in the first century and it certainly matters in the 21st century that we have a culture of honor. Look, look at the first couple verses with me. First Timothy chapter five says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, hold uh, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. In one word, respect, right? Like show, show respect to the older men. Even when you, and he's talking to a young pastor, he's saying, Timothy, even if you have to bring correction, don't do it harshly. The guy's old enough to be your dad. Like just handle it Handle it appropriately. Show respect to the older women and to the younger men and women. He says, treat them as brothers and sisters in absolute purity. It's funny, when, when I was in high school, uh, the, the, the rule that we always had drilled, they always said, no PDA. No PDA. Do you all know what that means? Like, public displays of affection. Like, they didn't, anyway, hey, no PDA. Students, do they still say that? Is that even a rule? No? We can tell. We can tell. Bring the rules back. No, I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> Dad says, amen. No PDA. That was the rule. So when I started in youth ministry, I used to say to our students, I would say, uh, PDA required. But it better be biblical. And then I would show them this verse. It says, treat the younger men like brothers and the younger women like sisters in absolute purity. So I was like, look, PDA, yes. Incest, no. All right. <laughs> Like that was, 
<laughs> I know, I know. It's amazing they still let me preach. But uh, like, but what he's saying, what he's really saying is that the church is family. That's it. Like, that's, that's the takeaway here, right out of the gate. The church is supposed to be like a family. Did you know Jesus saw the church as a family? This is such a great reminder for us, because honestly, we, we live, I mean, we live in the culture we live in. We see things through the lens we see it, and everything about our, our, our capitalistic, consumeristic culture, and hey, God bless America, and discounts, and blue light saving specials, and all that stuff, but everything about it causes us to lean towards that mentality when we come into the house of God. You know, it's just kind of like meet my needs. Give me, you know, give me drive through Jesus. Come on. Like, you know, just, just, just give me what I'm looking for with that consumer mentality. And Jesus said, no, the church is a family. It's not a product to be consumed. It's a people to be loved. That's good. Somebody should tweet that. I just made that up right there. That was... <laughs> That's right. What did I say? I don't know. Anyway. Jesus said this about, about the body of Christ. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The apostle Paul talking about the church in Galatians six ten. he said, therefore, if we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Another translation says the household of faith. Like we gotta go out of our way, go above and beyond, especially to do good to those that are in the family of God. And then to the church at Ephesus, which by the way is the church that Timothy's pastoring. So we're reading his letter to the pastor, Timothy, but he wrote another letter to the church that we call the book of Ephesians. And he told them in chapter two and verse 19, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers. What are you because of Christ? You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Church is a family. The relational dynamic in the church should be like a family. And some of you are like, Pastor, if you knew my family, you wouldn't want that. <laughs> You're like, you don't want that. Trust me, I understand. Every, every, every family has difficult people in it, right? Like, we're not too holy to admit there. Every family has difficult people. And some of you are like, no, honestly, we don't. If, if that's you today, I wanna be the bearer of bad news and tell you. You're the difficult person in your family. That's, that's why you don't think there is one. It's you, man. It's you. There's no perfect family. But in the church, this is where we ought to get it right. Right? I mean, come on. Like, in your family, you might be the only one that wants to honor God. You might be the only one that, that cares about your integrity and your character and, and honoring Jesus. But in the church, we're all submitted to the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and we die to self daily. And we, we live for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. Like, if we're ever going to get family right, listen, just because your family's a mess doesn't mean God, God's plan for family was messed up. Like, we mess it up, but the, the plan, the institution of the family was right. And, and so Paul says the church ought to be like a family. God said he's the father to the fatherless. He's married to the backslider. He sets the lonely in families. Jesus is referred to as your elder brother. And Paul says here in this text, treat the members of the body of Christ like family. 
You know, the scripture commands us over and over, love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be kind to one another, wait for one another, gently, patiently tolerate one another. There's 59 one another commands in just the New Testament. And yet there's still people that say, oh, I, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I just don't really, I'm not a church person. You cannot walk in obedience to the commands of Jesus in the New Testament and not be in a covenant relationship with God's people. You just can't. That, that's why I, I, one of our core values as a church is better together. And we saw that yesterday. Some of you were there. We had a, a serve team picnic yesterday for everybody that serves on our teams. It was just a chance for us to come together to say thank you to everyone that serves. But, but more than that, just an opportunity to, to get together with the family of God. Everybody that was at that picnic and many of you that served that couldn't be there, you understand that the journey with Jesus is sweeter when we serve together, when we celebrate together, even when we sorrow together. It's better together. So Paul makes this point that, that the church is to be like a family. And then we're gonna move forward here. He gets into chapter, or verse three, all the way through 16, honestly, it feels like an excessive amount of space given to one topic, and the topic is widows. Now, I know all of you got up for church this morning, and you were thinking, I hope he preaches about widows. <laughs> like, I know, I know that's what you were hoping for. Like, Verse three through 16, it's all about widows. Look at verse three. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Now, let me just say this. While, while caring for widows, it really is an important issue. The fact that in only six chapters, he gives almost all of chapter five to this topic, that is not an indication of the priorities of the church or what matters most in the, the together, the ecclesia of the church, the coming together. It's an indication of this fact that when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he was not writing a manual on church leadership. A lot of people have misunderstood because they try to take things that he said to Timothy and say this is the rule in every church, in every age, and in every community. What Paul was doing is he was writing to one pastor named Timothy who was leading a church in Ephesus in the first century. Now, there are timeless truths for us to understand, but don't think that the priority of the church was exclusively the widows because they got 15 verses and prayer only gets two verses. And so Timothy's dealing with some issues, and we've talked through these over the last few weeks. Some of the issues he's facing are concerning younger widows in the church who were being swayed by false teachers. In chapter one, you know, he opens up saying, Timothy, I want you to command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Why? He said, such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing the gospel. We gotta be about the gospel. Then in chapter two, he talks about some of the, the women's immodest attire. And if you were here for that week, that, that got a little uncomfortable. But again, the, the point he was making is that he, these women are dressing up on Sunday morning, coming to the house of God to in, impress God Almighty the same way they used to dress up to go to the house of the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility. And they would, they would adorn themselves lavishly so that they can impress the goddess of fertility, and, and Paul's saying, like, God, don't play that game. 
You don't impress God outwardly. He's looking at the heart. And, and Paul says these young women are not to be teaching. They're, they're, not to be, uh, they're not to be taking over authoritatively. And then in chapter three, he says, for the women that do lead, they're to lead in a manner that's worthy of respect, not malicious talk. And then in chapter four, he, he tells Timothy, have nothing to do with old wives' tales. Now you get into chapter five, and, and this is really cool because this is, uh, it reveals to us that there was actually organizational structure in the early church, specifically that had to do with widows. The church had a roster. Like they had a list for the widows. And, and this chapter in 1 Timothy is actually the earliest Christian uh, manuscript that we have regarding a special class for widows in the church who were financially supported by the church. And so what, what we're gonna see here, and we're not gonna read every verse, but in, in the next several verses, Paul outlines some stipulations for the widows that are on the roster that receive financial remuneration from the church. And one of them was, he said, Timothy, they need to be 60 or older. Another thing he said is they have a job description. He talks about that they need to bring up children. That doesn't mean if you were a widow and you never had kids, then you don't qualify. But most scholars believe what he's talking about is the priority of the church to care for widows and orphans. And the way you cared for the orphans was by caring for the widows. The widows cared for the orphans. And so bring, they bring up children. They show hospitality. Then it says washing feet. How many of you know washing feet would not be a description that, like, that's not a job description. We don't need foot washers. We need parking lot attendants, okay? You can sign up for that. But we didn't need foot washers, but they, had to, they washed the feet of those that were coming in to worship. They helped those that were in trouble. They did good deeds morning and night. They were faithful in prayer. So rather than look at all the specific instructions in chapter five, what I wanna do is just quickly highlight some of the principles because how many of you know the word of God is always applicable to our life? Look at verse four. Paul says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. You know what the first principle is I see here? Godliness starts at home. That's, that's what he's saying here. Godliness starts at home. Listen, long before God ever established the church, Long before he ever established the nation of Israel as his chosen people, he established the home. He started there and he said it was good. And, and if the church is supposed to act like the family, what he said in verse one and two, then doesn't it make sense that the family ought to be modeling godliness for the church? In chapter three, one of the qualifications that he gave for elders and deacons in the church, he said he must manage his own family well. Like, in other words, if, you, if you're not doing this well at home, if you're not living an authentic Christian life at home, don't, don't try to come and play games on Sunday. Don't, don't try to lead us if you're not leading well at home. Look at verse seven and eight here, still in chapter five. He says, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. So once again, and this is like a thread weaving throughout the whole uh, book of 1 Timothy. Paul's concern is for the testimony of the church. He said, the reason I'm giving you these instructions is so that people live their life above reproach, that they live uh, and they're not open to being blamed. What he's saying is how you live your life matters. Like 
How you take care of your family matters. How you raise your kids, it matters. It's important. Paul emphasizes uh, this to them. And look at verse eight. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Like, that's pretty strong. He says, if, if you're not taking care of your own family, you've denied the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. And the reason you're worse is because they might be living wrong, but at least they're living real. Like, you're saying one thing and doing something else. Uh, you know, last week we were in chapter four, and I figured that out because I'm good at math. But we were looking at Paul's instructions for what a good minister is. He said a good minister is one who's willing to tell the truth. A minister who, who will, will point out falsehood and guide people back to truth. He said, be a good minister of Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, you might remember I said, listen, I, I don't care if I'm a famous preacher. I'll probably never be a famous preacher, but I do know this, I better be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what 1 Timothy 4, 6 says, be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. But can I, can I just backtrack on that and tell you today, there is one place I do want to be famous. I want to be famous in my own home. I mean, I want to be a big deal to my kids. I want to be the whole deal to my wife. I, I, I mean, Paul says, if you, don't, if you don't live this thing out at home, you're worse than an unbeliever. I mean, God help us. I mean, what, what good is it if, if we lead well on Sunday and, and, and build a great church and then my kids, they move out of the house and they move away from Jesus? He says, this thing's gotta be real in your home. It's gotta be real in your life. And if you're claiming that it is and not walking in the way, you're, you're worse off than an unbeliever. In verse uh, nine through 16, Paul starts really defining the the widows in the church and what the qualifications were. And three times in this chapter, he says real widows, like re real widows. In other words, like the qualifications were more than what we might just assume, obviously, a widow is someone that's lost their spouse. But he's talking about qualifications for leaders in the church. These women were leaders, along with the elders he's talked about and the deacons. Uh, and, and most likely, many scholars believe even the slaves that he's gonna mention in chapter six had positions of leadership in the church. The earliest writings uh, of the church, they defined the office as the widows of the congregation. That was the, the name, widows of the congregation. In, in the next century after, after Paul, we have uh, historical records that show that the widows played a significant role in the ministry of the church. In fact, one of the early, early megachurches in the Byzantine era Hagia Sophia in Constantinople might have had hundreds of widows on its staff. They visited homes, they brought food for the hungry, they cared for the sick, they comforted the bereaved, they prayed for all who made their requests known, they assisted in Christian instruction and baptism, and they counseled those in need. So powerful were they in prayer that early Christian literature sometimes calls the widows the intercessors of the church. Another name for them in church history is the keeper of the door. Another name for them is the altar of God. And we actually have an example of one of these widows in the church 
even farther back in church history, as far back as the Christmas story, we see one of these widows operating in the church. In, in the Christmas story, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is born in Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph take him at the time of purification into the temple, as was the custom. And in Luke 2, 36, it says there, when they got there, was a prophet, Anna. You remember Anna? It says the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage. And then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them in that very moment, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's this faithful widow. She was, she was a young widow. She was only married for seven years and her husband died and she devoted herself to the house of God all the rest of her life. One of the first people to, to lay eyes on Jesus and see him for who he really was as the Messiah that had been prophesied and she begins to speak. She's, she's called a prophet in the text. She's telling everybody the good news. And she's proclaiming who Jesus came to be. But, but Timothy's not pastoring in Jerusalem. And this isn't, this isn't uh, Judaism. This is the, the church. And he's in a pagan city called Ephesus. And these young widows, they hadn't been saved too long, and they certainly weren't raised on the word of God like Anna was. And so... Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't want the young widows to be treated like Anna. Look at verse 11 in 1 Timothy 5. He says, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they're gonna wanna marry. So there's actually a principle here. It's, it's actually a word of encouragement to those that have experienced the tragedy of losing a spouse. Because I've known many Christians that have gone through that difficult season and then they, they come out on the other side of it after there's a time of healing and a time of grieving and they start to, to wrestle with the question, is it okay to pursue love again? Is it okay to get married? Would, would, I, would that be, a, would, would that be a, a mark or a blemish on my, uh, my loving devotion and my vows to God? Paul responds and he says, Keep living, keep living. That's what he says to the younger women. Look at verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Like being a widow in that day, admittedly, was a lot different than it is today. I mean, there are, there are many widows today that they're comfortably cared for because they have their own career or they have their husband's pension or retirement account or life insurance policy or social security. None of the things I just mentioned existed in the community that Timothy was pastoring in. So there was a much more of a burden on families and on the church to help those who were really in need. So the bigger principle, again, we're asking God to speak to his word to us today. The bigger principle is we gotta care for those that are really in need. That's what he's communicating. And Paul gives three rules, three practical rules for a real widow in the text. He says, number one, aloneness. 
In other words, they don't have family to take care of them. They're legitimately alone. Number two, the need. Like, is there a real need there? Now, a lot of people today say they have needs, but how many of you know in our culture, there's a big difference between needs and wants? A lot of people that want help, they don't need help. They need a job. They need to get up. They need to go do something. They want help. I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to get up here and you know, preach about Richmond, north of Richmond or anything, but you understand what I'm saying? Like, we live in a society, so that went over some of your heads, but anyway, we, we live in a society where, where we have government agencies, uh, programs to assist people, and thank God we do. We thank God we live in a culture where those things are available, but a lot of people have kind of taken what we have experienced at our disposal, and they've kind of projected those expectations onto the church. You'd be amazed at how many people, you know, just think that, I don't know, that the church is a bank, or that we're, that we're made of money, or, or that maybe we get government funding. Like, the church is not funded by the government. And I, sometimes I have to tell people, like, every, everything that the church has, we have because other people, just like you, worked all week, and out of their own volition, they contributed money to the church. Like, that's how the church exists. That's how the bills get paid. That's how the staff gets paid. That's how we do outreach to this community. Like, there's, there's no money flowing in from the government. And so Paul says, there, there's stipulations here. We wanna help people, but it was the same then. The Roman Empire wasn't helping the church exist. He said, they need to be truly alone. They need to be in need. And the third thing was godliness. Like, are these people that are faithfully serving God and serving his church? And I gotta tell you, I think that's pretty good criteria. Paul lays out in verse three at the beginning of this whole thing that we should give proper recognition to those widows who really are in need. But then he continues this flow. After he gets through this, he continues the flow of thinking about leadership in the church, and he gives three more practical rules, but this time they have to do with leaders in the church. Look with me in verse 17 through 21. He says to Timothy, the elders, remember we talked a few weeks ago, the elders are those that, that pastor, lead, teach, preach, those that uh, administrate the church. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. I gotta say, I, I resent that metaphor. I don't know why he had to relate those who preach and teach the word to an ox. You know, he could have he said a stallion. That would have worked. But we'll take it. He said, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Look at verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. So practical guidelines here for leaders in the church. Number one, there's three of them. He said, number one, pay them well. Like, they're, they're, like the church's job is not to keep the pastor humble and God's job is to keep him anointed. Some people think that, like you keep him anointed, we'll keep him humble. Look, pay them well. But then the second thing he says is give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, Revelation 12 talks about the devil as the accuser of the brethren. So you understand, like, th that's, that's in his wheelhouse. The devil is great at accusing. That, that's, that's his namesake. And so don't be surprised when accusations come at spiritual leaders. The word says that the, sh the shepherd is, they strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. 
And we live in, in a cancel culture. And so it's really easy for us to kind of take on that mindset of just fault finding in everyone else. And so Paul brings some balance here. And he says, hey, don't, don't just take an accusation at face value against one of your spiritual leaders or elders in the church. He says, make sure that, that it's brought with credibility. Two or three witnesses. But then he balances that statement with verse 20. And he says, here's the third principle. Hold them accountable. Like, like don't, I mean, don't, don't just cancel them the first moment somebody says something about them, but hold them accountable. In other words, what he's saying is this, nobody's above reproof. Like, doesn't, doesn't matter how big your platform is, doesn't matter how much influence you have or how many followers you have. If a, if a leader, if a minister, if a preacher or teacher is worthy of double honor, they're also worthy of double reproof. Because he said, when you, when you do hold them accountable, do it publicly. In other words, the church is not to sweep things under the rug. How many times has that gotten the church in trouble over the years? Like, no, 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 you, you, you're up there, man. You're on the platform, for better or for worse, you know? And sometimes it's a difficult place to stand, but he says they deserve double honor, but they also deserve double reproof. And then Paul adds this, verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. In other words, there's no preferential treatment. That's done a lot of damage in the church where, where leaders have, have risen to a level where there's no one around them to hold them accountable. And it's right here in the text. Like this, is, this is how we handle leadership. We honor them. We, we pay them well. We love them. We support them. I mean, you know, David, he, he committed adultery and, and then murder. And, and God didn't throw his anointing away. There, there was consequences. There was punishment. But ultimately, there was restoration. And he was called a man after God's heart. And, and too quickly, we want to just throw people's anointing away the first time they, they make a mistake. And so Paul gives this beautiful balance here. And he says, no, no, you don't let them get, you don't, you don't get away with it. No favoritism, no partiality. I don't care who you are. You're gonna be accountable. And at the same time, he brings a beautiful balance to giving a benefit of the doubt to those who have a big target on their back, who the enemy would love to hit with his flaming arrows of accusation. So Paul's still thinking about accountability in the church, and he adds verse 22, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, what he's saying is because there is a higher standard for leaders in the church, don't be quick to, to appoint people to leadership. Don't lay hands on somebody suddenly because it, not only are they now accountable to that level of leadership, but you're accountable for putting them in that position of leadership. Like we live in a day now where like you can, you can, you can pay a minimal fee and you can get a minister's license on the internet. Like, you know, but the scripture says, pity the person that's selling those credentials because you're accountable for the integrity of that person that you've just given that license. Now, we've got several in this church right now that are pursuing credentials and they can testify. It's a process. In the assemblies of God, it's a process. There's classes to take, there's meetings to have, there's internships to be a part of. It's a process, why? Because the word of God says, we're accountable for the platform we put you on, not just you. That's why, you know, we, we have people that, again, just like you, somebody can download a certificate to minister off the internet, uh, 
you, you can rent a preacher for a wedding this weekend pretty easily, you know? You can just dial a pastor, you know, if you need somebody to do a wedding for you. And I've, we've, we have people call all the time, you know, about doing weddings. And what I always tell people is this, like, we're willing to talk to you about doing your wedding, but I'm not in the knot tying business. Like, I, I, this is not a side hustle for me. I'm not trying to make a quick buck, like doing weddings, you know, on Saturdays to compensate my income. No, 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 we'll do your wedding, but we're gonna sit down and we're gonna talk. We're gonna make sure you understand what a Christian marriage is. And we only do Christian weddings that align with the word of God. And we want you to understand what our conviction is and we wanna talk to you about what a healthy marriage is. We don't wanna just plan for a wedding. We wanna plan for a marriage. Because we feel a sense of responsibility. Now, I, I can't have a good marriage for you and I'm not in control of what you do in the future, but I am accountable from my part that I play. And so Paul says, don't be hasty about anointing people. Keep your heart and your life pure. And then quickly, we'll get, get to the end here. In verse 23, he says, every alcoholic's favorite verse in the Bible. Here it comes. Verse 23, Paul says to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. It's amazing how many people that don't know John 3.16 can say, well, the Bible says take a little wine for the stomach's sake. Right? Like, take a little wine. You know, Paul is, this feels so out of place, right? I mean, like, we're talking about widows, we're talking about leaders, and then take a little wine for your stomach's sake. But what he's talking about is living a life above reproach. But that's, the, that's the thread he's pulling out here. Live a life above reproach. Last week, we talked about some of the false teaching was asceticism. There were people that were saying, abstain from certain foods, abstain from wearing certain fabrics, abstain from all these things as a means to godliness. Timothy, a young pastor who Paul has already encouraged, hey, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Be the example. Maybe Timothy was kind of caving into some of that, that cultural pressure of asceticism. He's only drinking water, and apparently from Paul's words here, he was dealing with a frequent illness. Most likely, it's a bacterial infection. He's drinking water. In fact, historians tell us that the, the, the water there in Ephesus had a very high alkalinity to it. So if Paul wrote this today, he would have said, Timothy, get a water filter. <laughs> right? Take some amoxicillin for that bacterial infection you got. It was common practice that people would use wine for medicinal purposes in the day. And so what Paul is actually saying here is, Timothy, listen, you're gonna be too religious for some people and you're never gonna be religious enough for other people. So don't neglect your own health for the sake of pleasing everyone else. And we can apply that to our, our physical bodies, but also to our emotional health, to our physical well-being. Sometimes we say, man, you're, you're doing this, you're doing all that, and you're just doing it to please people. Like you're, you're wearing yourself, you're not even spiritually healthy, and you're doing all that for other people. Paul's like, Timothy, come on, take a little wine, get over the infection, stop doing the water-only thing. Some of us, maybe you just need to be reminded, like it has nothing to do with what you eat or drink, but maybe with the way you manage your time. No, it's still a good answer. 
No is a good answer. Sometimes we need to just not live under the, the pressure of pleasing people because you're, you're always gonna be too religious for some. You're never gonna be religious enough for others. So as we end here, Paul, he goes on in the next two verses to just underscore the whole idea of not appointing people to leadership too quickly by basically saying a person's character, good or bad, it will come to light. Like that, that's what's gonna happen. Like people might look one way and then you find out there's something else, but whether it's good or bad, it'll come to light. The cream always rises to the top. So as we just take in the word of God today, I wanna invite you to do something that has been a practice of mine for years in my personal devotion. Oftentimes I'll just, wherever I'm at, and maybe you didn't get up this morning thinking you were gonna study 1 Timothy chapter five, but when I have my time of devotion with the Lord, I'll read the word and and I'll do it systematically so I don't always go to my favorite verses, you know. I'll start at the beginning of the year and, and I'll follow a plan. That way, I have to look at the, the hard places. And then oftentimes after I've, you know, read the word and maybe journaled a little bit about it or highlighted a couple verses, and then I'll just, before, I, before I'm done, I'll just let my eyes kind of scan back over the text and I'll just convert God's word into my own prayer. Just, God, let these things be true in my life. And so as we end today, if you're able, would you stand again? Would you just honor the Lord's presence by standing? We're gonna just take a moment here to pray God's word into our lives. Today, as, um, as I pray out loud, may, maybe there's just one or two things that the Holy Spirit would kind of press on you a little deeper than the rest. By all means, stay right there and allow the Lord to just speak to your heart. God, we just thank you today for your word. We're so grateful that you loved us enough that you've given us your word. We don't have to walk in the dark. We don't have to live in the realm of speculation. We we have your word today. And I pray that your word would work in our lives. God, would you make us a church that acts like a family? Lord, help us to be not, not consumers of, of a product, but devoted and faithful to the people of God. This is your church, Jesus, that you died for. This is your church that you said you would come again for, Jesus. Make us a, a family. And God, we pray for our own families, that we would be godly, that we would be able to model what what it looks like to live out our faith that we would be that we would be godly in our marriages that we would be godly in the way we raise our kids in the way that we care for our parents grandparents extended family lord give us give us an integrity of character today that will carry us past the sunday morning experience God, give us a heart of mercy for those that are really in need. It's so easy with living in our entitled culture. It's easy to get jaded. It's easy to get calloused and 
God, there are people within our reach with real needs that you've asked us to meet. So give us a heart, a sensitivity, a tenderness, that, a willingness to, to not pass off our responsibility to the government, but to recognize we have a role to play. Jesus, give us a, a willingness to, to go to the one in prison, to feed the one that's hungry, to clothe the one that's naked, for Jesus, you said, when you've done these things to the least of these, you did it unto me. So God, help us to be a people that are a house of mercy. God, help us today to honor those in authority. It's so easy in this toxic culture that we live in to, to just make everything about issues and forget that your heart's for people so quick to want to cancel people and write them off. God, help us to be people of integrity. You're a God of justice, for sure. But you're also a God of grace and a God of mercy. Lord, help us to model what it looks like to show accountability. Lord, even, even to the highest level of leadership. To not show favoritism or partiality but to be righteous. God, help us to, to live a life that speaks for itself. Even as your word declares, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind. And in the same way, good deeds are obvious and even those that are not obvious will not remain hidden forever. As we read the final words of chapter five, God, Help us to be a people whose, whose life is evidence of the transformation that came when we made Jesus the Lord of all. Lord, thank you for your word today. We love you and we love your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, can we just bless the Lord for his word? Thank you, Lord.